Well, I've titled the sermon this morning, Seven Marks of True Faith in Christ. There's actually ten marks of true faith in Christ that Paul is mentioning here. If you were here last week, we actually talked about the first three, and we talked about them in, in, in regards to how Paul was praying and giving thanks to God that he was seeing this fruit in the lives of the Thessalonian believers. Uh, you remember what those first three were? Faith, hope, and love. Yeah, the, the sort of the triad, right? Their works of faith, their labor of love, and that hope that they have in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, so what he's really doing is he's continuing in that same uh, line of thanks, thanksgiving to God for what he's seeing in their lives. But, but as we talked about last week, when you give thanks to God, you're recognizing that all of these things come from Him. And apart from God giving these things and providing these things, producing this kind of fruit, that fruit wouldn't be there, right? Uh, so th- not only is he thanking God, sort of looking back and saying, yes, God is working in you, there's a sense in which he's continuing to pray forward and saying, if this is going to be sustained in the church, God has to produce that fruit, right? We need to keep praying for one another that God will, will make us into a people who look like these things. Um, so Kendra just read to us the, 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 the whole passage there, verses 1-10 through 10, that we looked at last week and we'll continue to this week. And you may have caught in verse 4, Paul says to the church there, he says, we know brothers or brethren, he's including everybody there, he know brothers loved by God that He has chosen you. Which is a pretty um, bold thing to say. Right? He knows that you are the ones that God has chosen. You are the elect of God. And, and so it, it, it sort of forces us to ask the question, how do you know that? How do you know if you are chosen and loved by God? And that's really what we want to look at this morning because the fruit that he's talking about here, these seven marks that we'll look at today, are really the evidence by which we can, we can know. So the main idea for the message this morning, if I can get this to work, is this. As we pray for increased spiritual fruit in our own and each other's lives, and that again, that's sort of the point that he's getting at. He's praying for this fruit and giving thanks for it. As we pray for increased spiritual fruit in our own and each other's lives, we need to bear in mind that there are certain marks that authenticate our identity as genuine, growing Christians. Okay? There are certain things that will authenticate that. And apart from these marks, we cannot have assurance that we're truly among God's elect people. That's just a long sentence that basically says this. If you are one of God's people, you're going to look a certain way. By God's grace, He's producing this in us. But there's a there's something that happens. There's, there's a change of life. So again, remember he's giving thanks to God for the fruit that, the, the fruit that he sees and therefore knows that God has produced it. And he's looking forward again and sort of saying, let's, let's keep praying. He's keeping praying, he and the others, that this is what will, will continue to be evident in their lives. So again, the following verses, he lays out these seven additional marks. And I say additional because there's ten and we looked at three last week. Seven additional marks of God's saving grace in the lives of His people. Look again at, at verse 4 where we'll, we'll begin. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because 
Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. So we're talking about marks that, that, that show evidence of our faith in Christ. Number one is this. You receive the gospel in word, power, and conviction. You receive it in word, power, and conviction. You've probably seen the, the game show uh, on television called To Tell the Truth. You know what I'm talking about? A long time ago. It's, it's actually it's a, it's a game show that um, has been on in various different reboots really over every decade since the 1950s. So most of you have probably seen it. If you haven't seen it, I'll, I'll give you the general idea. Is to, the game is this. It's, it's to figure out which of three panelists are telling the truth about their real identity. So you've got three people who are all claiming to be the same person. And they're giving you details about their lives. They're answering questions that are asked from the contestants about them to try to figure out which one of these is the real so-and-so. right? But again, two of them are lying. Only one of them is the real person whose name has been given. And at the end of the show, there's always the big reveal. Right, will, will, will the real so-and-so please stand up? And you see all three of them start to bob and look at each other. And then eventually one of them rises up, right? One of them is who they say they are. Which is, I'm bringing that up just to simply illustrate this point. You are who you are, not who you say you are. Right? Uh Psychologists have this, this phrase that you, you, you are what you do, not what you say you'll do. And that's kind of the idea that, that, that I think Paul's getting at here. You are who you are. Not what you say you are, but what actually is revealed in your life. A caterpillar can say it's a butterfly, but it's not a butterfly until and unless there's a transformation of its nature. Right? And that's kind of this, again, this, 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 this similar idea that, he, that Paul's getting at. Every Christian is one who's received the gospel in word. You've heard it, but there's more to it than that. It's not just that you've heard it, but that there's an actually, it's, it's authenticated by what, what you've heard then actually produces in you. And that, that's, that's what he's getting at when he's talking about it comes not just with word, but in power. And in conviction. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10 that faith comes by hearing the gospel. I'll put it up on the screen. Romans 10 verses 14 to 17. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news but they have not all obeyed the Gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what He has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. Now, notice what he says here, right? He says faith comes by hearing the Word of Christ, but he also says, but not all have obeyed the Gospel. You can hear it and not necessarily obey it. Jesus says something similar when he's talking about the, the, in his parable of the sower. Remember that he cast the seed uh, and, and it falls on, on different 
soil. Some falls on the sidewalk. Some falls in the, in the rocks. Some falls in the thorns. And some falls in good soil. And he explains what he means by that parable in this way. This is Matthew chapter 13. He says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, but when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, another thirty. So Jesus is saying it's not necessarily the amount of fruit that's produced, it's the fact that it is, there's their fruit at all. Right? Paul explains here in, in 1 Thessalonians 1 that this fruit is produced by power. Okay? It's produced by power and it results in conviction. So we go back to the original question that I asked. How do you know if you are chosen and loved by God? Your, your hearing of the Gospel is accompanied by power that leads to conviction. What is the power? What is that power? Well, it's the same power that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 when he says, the Gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's the power of God for salvation. That power comes through the Holy Spirit. And the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives is that He opens our understanding to the Gospel, which is what Jesus was talking about in that parable. It's the one who understands truly. He opens our understanding and He regenerates us to life in Christ. That's a, that's a, that's a word that, that the Scriptures use, and I'll put one up in a minute here. But that idea of regeneration is it takes what's, what was dead and makes it alive. He regenerates us. This is Titus 3, 4 and 7. 4 through 7, I should say. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's the power of God is that moment when the Holy Spirit brings you to life. Brings you to understanding. That's power. It's true power because it's God's power. And we know that that power has come upon us. We know that the Holy Spirit is, is at work in us because its immediate results is the conviction of our sin and the ensuing cry then for mercy that we now recognize we need. Right? When I'm, when I'm made aware of the fact that, that I am, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, the first thing I'm going to be doing is crying out, save me. That's what he means by the power that leads to conviction. 
Jesus said in John 16, when the Helper comes, the, 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 the Comforter, the Holy Spirit He's talking about, when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's His job. That's, that's the ministry of the Spirit. When Peter preached the Gospel in Jerusalem at the very beginning of the apostolic ministry in Acts chapter 2, it says this. It says that, when they had heard this, and he had, again, this is the gospel. He just preached the gospel to them. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. See, there's the conviction, right? They were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? There's that cry. There's that cry for mercy. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's the power. right? For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. Again, there's power. So we should thank God and, and we should continually pray for that fruit in each other's lives. right? Do we see and God, can we give you thanks for the fact that our lives are marked by the, the, the power of the Holy Spirit that continually leads us to the conviction of our sin? And we can evaluate then our own profession of faith by that standard. Right? If you belong to Christ, you can point to the fruit of the Spirit that brings about regeneration, the conviction of sin, that cry for mercy. You can, you can see that in your life. And you should see it not just in the, in the moment of salvation, but in an ongoing sense. Like, not that you're continually needing to be saved again, but the fruit of that salvation is that ongoing awareness of my, my wretchedness, right? God, thank you that you've remade me into a new person. Keep remaking me. You've justified me. Sanctify me. Right? Jesus said, bear fruit in keeping in repentance. So that, that change, uh, it's, it's, like the, it's like the butterfly, the caterpillar that becomes the butterfly. It's, it's lasting and ongoing. And that's the point. You change. You change. Martin Luther, the, the reformer, put it this way. He said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So receiving the Gospel in word, power, and conviction is a necessary mark of genuine saving faith. Now that's a point that I want to I kind of hover on for just a little bit longer here. Because I've said that we're going to look at Seven marks of true saving faith this morning, but I, I've spent a lot of time on this first one, more than I will on the others, because it's so foundational. And it's so easy to be deceived into being those that maybe we think, well, I've heard the Word, and therefore, I guess that's all there is to it. It's easy to be deceived and, and, and thinking that I'm a Christian because I wear a label. Right? I wear a label. It's, 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 it, even though there's, there's not fruit of repentance in my life, it, it becomes more of, of sort of like a cultural label. 
Uh, the numbers on the decline, but still, uh, you know, if you look at polls, they say something like 75 to 80 percent of Americans claim to be Christian. Right? And I think, again, it, it, it speaks more to our, our understanding of Christianity as sort of a cultural label than an actual God worked out power and conviction of sin. We'll, we, we might say, well, you know, I, I grew up in a Christian home. I, I have Christian parents. We went to a Christian church. We, we celebrated Christmas and Easter, not Hanukkah or Ramadan. So we're, you know, we're Christian. I have a Christian dog. I think we pretty, we always drove Christian cars, I'm pretty sure, right? It becomes a label that we wear that's really wrapped up more in culture. But here's the thing. Christianity is not a label. It's not a label. It's transformation of life in Christ that is marked by faith and repentance. It's power. It bears fruit. It's power. It bears fruit. So I would say, as Jesus would often say, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. And then Paul goes on to lay out this fruit. What is that fruit? Okay, repentance. That's part of it. But what's the ongoing and lasting fruit? He lays out this fruit by giving us six more marks of genuine saving faith. And though there's somewhat of a list here, I've got six more things here. Uh, they're not, they're not compartmentalized. Alright, they're not bifurcated or, I guess that's not the right word when you're talking about seven things. What's the right word for bifurcated with seven? Heptafurcated or something? Right? They're not that. Like, they're, they're, they, they don't sort of stand alone. They're, they're overlapping. And they, and they flow from one another. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna put them all up here on the screen at, at, at one time and, and we'll kind of talk through how they flow together and, and maybe I'll spend a little bit more time on a few of them that I, I feel like maybe we need a little more encouragement in praying for this morning. But let me, let me read it again as you look at the list. We know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our Gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. See, in there you see six more things. You, you, you become an imitator of God and the apostles. You have joy in affliction and trials through the Holy Spirit. You become an example to the church. You become an evangelist. You turn from idols to the living God and you have expectant hope in Christ and in His return. Right? Notice how they, they, they overlap with each other. Let's, let's, let's talk about what it means to become an imitator of God and the apostles. That, in other words, is this. It's discipleship. Right? To become an imitator of God and, and us, as Paul's saying here, of the apostles, that this is discipleship. To be a disciple is to be a follower of or a student of a teacher and to become like them. 
right? When we use the term discipleship in the church, that's what we mean. We're, we're, we're talking about life-on-life life instruction that leads to a life that looks like Christ. In Ephesians 5, Paul says there, be imitators of God as beloved children, which is a great, a great example, a great uh, visual image for us of what that looks like. Children become like their parents. And they become like their parents because they spend time with their parents, first and foremost. Right? They're shaped by them because they spend time with them. They, they, they learn from them. They watch their parents' examples. They watch their values and they receive those values. And hopefully they begin to pattern their lives. They seek to, to pattern their lives after those things, right? So, so in the same way, Paul's saying, be an imitator of God, which entails we're spending time with God. We're learning from Him. We're seeing His values and, and, and receiving them and aiming to pattern our lives after the same way. So on the one hand, this is surely one of the works of faith that we were talking about last week. There's a work involved in that. To imitate is to, is to do something, right? And this doing something, as we talked about last week, is really, it's, it's grace-driven effort. Yes, it's grace-driven, and, and I want to come back to that because that's an important thing. It's initiated by God. The power of God gives us the ability at all by that regeneration to even do this work, but there is a work that ensues on our part, right? There's effort. It's grace-driven effort. And God and His power produces in us that, that conformity. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And if 2 Corinthians 3 says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So there's this idea that part of the fruit that comes about when, when there's genuine election is we, we start looking like God. We become imitators of God, right? But here's the thing, you can't be an imitator of God and not be an example to the church. Right? Paul says that they became imitators of not just God, but also of, of Him. And of Silas, who was originally with him in that uh, first church planting effort. Uh, and of Timothy and Silvanus, who were writing this letter. Again, this is discipleship. You, you, you become an example to the church as you look more like the Lord. Paul says to the Corinthian church, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And he also says that their discipleship has been an example to other surrounding churches. He's seen that fruit in their lives. Again, verse 7, it's, it, it, it's, it's really a beautiful thing for him to say. So you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Uh, the churches all around you, uh, they testify of this, this power that God is doing in your life. You look like Him. right? And then he goes on beyond that to say not only that, but the word of the Lord is sounded forth beyond. We don't even have to say anything. People, people tell us about what they see in your life, right? You become an example to the church. We, we not only learn to imitate God by the inward work of the Holy Spirit who leads us into all truth and regenerates us with new life, but we also learn from the example of other godly Christians who live their lives before our watching eyes. And we're called to be those kinds of people that kind of an example to one another in the church. 
True faith, here's the fruit, true faith makes lives that are worthy of imitation and example. But what does that look like? What does that example look like? Well, look back at the list. Here's part of that overlap. One of the things it looks like is it exhibits joy in affliction and trials through the Holy Spirit. You want to see the evidence of Christ's likeness in somebody? One of the ways you'll see it is they'll have a joy in their suffering. They'll have a joy in their suffering. So let's talk a little, a little bit about that because that's a, that's a tough subject, right? Why do we experience affliction and trials? Why? And, and then let's talk about the reason for joy in that. You know, it's interesting, if you read through the New Testament, you'll see this over and over again. One of the chief ways that we imitate Christ is, is through our suffering. The Apostle Peter talks a lot about suffering as Christians. 1 Peter 2, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this, you've been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. Chapter 4, he says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. And a little earlier in, in chapter 4, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So I know that begs the question, why is there suffering at all? Well, we might get that, okay, well, Christ suffered and we're called, to, we're called to that same example, but why? It's a good question. It's a tough question. That, the problem of suffering is a stumbling block for a lot of people. The problem of suffering will, would cause many people to, to question or to reject the goodness of God. How could a good God allow there to be suffering in the world, right? Well, let me, let me share with you just a, a, a little personal story. Something God used in my life to teach me about this. And it's, it, it sounds like it's really a, kind of a silly story. You're probably going to laugh about it. But, but it, I'm going to keep coming back to the picture here because it, I, think, I think it's helpful. When I was in fifth grade, I, uh, I, was, I wanted to play Pop Warner football. And the thing about Pop Warner fifth, fifth grade football is that you, you, you have to be a certain size. You, you can't be too big because there's a lot of little fifth graders, right? And so the cutoff was 100 pounds. And in fifth grade, I was, I was a lot bigger than most of my peers. And I was like right on the, right on the verge of crossing 100 pounds. And so I had to train. I had to keep my weight down. And I spent a month at my grandmother's house up in Oregon with my two older cousins, my male cousins. And one of them in high school, my cousin Larry, took it upon himself to be my, my motivational trainer, which was not, not a good thing for me. All right. Uh, Larry was not a kind young man. All right. One of the things that he did was that my, my grandparents lived on a river and so he would take me out to the river uh, and he would, he would have me get in the water and swim against the current. And if I swam against the current, the best I could hope for was that I'd stay in one spot, really. right? Because it would, it would carry. right? So here's how he motivated me. He motivated me by sitting on the riverbanks on a rock with my grandfather's pellet gun. And when I started to slide back, he would aim to shoot me in the rear end. This taught me two things. One, it taught me my cousin is a psychopath. <laughs> More importantly, it taught me this. 
that's actually that's a picture of suffering. Not the getting getting shot by your cousin, but the but the 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 picture of being in the water and swimming against the current. And and I go back to that that picture actually often in my mind as a, as sort of a an explanation of why there's suffering in the world. And 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 it, it there's a there's a real biblical application to that. You think about what happened at the fall. Genesis chapter 3, when, at, when Adam and Eve sinned against God and, and the curse of that sin was then, was then imputed to, to all humanity. And what happened was they were cast out of the garden, right? And there's a specific picture there that talks about them being cast out to the east of Eden. And then when you get to chapter 4, you see Cain and Abel and you see the murder that, that takes place there. And, and, the, and the punishment was, was, was to be cast even further east. And that, 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 uh, that imagery of east of Eden appears over and over again throughout the Old Testament as sort of this visual reminder that, that where we started in the presence of God and because of the, the effects of sin, there's a slide that's moving away from Him. And it just keeps further and further, right? And so this is the world that we step into as we're born in sin. We, we live in a world that, that everything is flowing away from God. It's flowing away from holiness. The pattern of sin is to, is to drive us by a current away from the Lord. And that's the flow that you're in before you come to Christ. But when, we're, when we come to Christ, by the power of God, what He does in that regeneration is repentance means turning. right? So there's that picture of turning against that flow, but we still live in the flow. We still live in the broken, fallen world, and so the, the picture of the Christian life is one that's constantly going up against the current. So you say, well, why, why is there suffering in the world? There's suffering in the world because the flow is going against God, and, and you as believers will experience it simply by the fact that you live in, in a new nature that's, that's pulling you back, walking back in obedience towards Christ and conforming to His image. You're always going to be going against that flow. And therefore, there's suffering. Right? My, a good friend of mine is writing a book right now that the, the title of the book is, is probably going to be something like The Three Trees. And the idea there is that it's this picture of, of, of the sort of the scope of humanity from the beginning. The first tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's that picture of, of sin. How sin entered into the world. And the, the third tree is the tree of life in Revelation. Where we, where, where Jesus restores all things to Himself and we're in the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth, and we're, we're with the presence of God. The, the, the second tree, the middle tree, is the pathway from the first tree to the second, and it's the cross of Christ. And what is that cross? It's a cross of suffering. We're called to go through the cross in order to get into the tree of life. And what is it that we're told about Jesus and the cross? It was for the hope that was set before Him that He endured the cross. That's the Christian life too. Right? So, so there is a, there's a suffering that's, that's not to be considered abnormal. It's, it's just a picture of a life that's going the other way in a broken, fallen world. Um, Remember the context of the Thessalonian church. We, we, I, I just I, I began to explain that a little bit, but but here's this here's this group of people who have come to Christ very recently, and they're in a culture that is very 
heavily uh, idolatrous. Uh, there's, there's, the, there's the Greek and the Roman influence there of, of, of this worship of, of all kinds of different gods. But there's also this political tension there uh, that is very leery of any talk of, of a threat to the throne of Caesar. And so you've got this, this group of believers who have who've just come to faith in Christ and they're recognizing that all of those other idols that they've put their trust in over the years are false. They're, they're, they're not real. That there's one true living God. And He's the King. And, you, and they're surrounded by a group of people who, who A, don't want to hear that all their gods are false and B, don't start talking about another king or we're going to get in trouble. What happens? There's, there's tremendous pressure on this church. There's persecution that's coming to this church. And so Paul's saying, look, in that you have experienced suffering, but there's joy in your suffering. Why? Well, because... First of all, they've turned from idols to the living God. They, they, have, they have a knowledge now that what they're suffering for is, is, is alive, is real. Go back to my analogy of the, of the river. Um, what happens when there's, a, when there's a flood? We saw this in California recently with mudslides. What happens? The, the brokenness that causes that current to start to flow takes a lot of things with it. And, and, and a lot of those things are good things, right? Homes and, and, and people, good things get, get caught up in that flow. And, and idolatry is this, is when, you, when you're in that flow and you begin to recognize that I need something for my security, you, you look for something to grab onto and so you grab onto what you see floating by. And it might be a good thing, but here's the problem with it. It's broken now. It's caught up in that flow away from true goodness, and it's not really going to save you. It might prolong you a little bit, but ultimately it's leading toward the same destruction as everything else. That's a picture of idolatry. And so here Paul says, look, you've, you've, you, you're in that current but your eyes aren't on the idols that are flowing by you. You're not grabbing onto them. You have hope. Oh, i got to put it back up. You have hope in Christ and His return. Right? You've turned from those idols. You're looking at Jesus. And you know that in that flow, His power sustains. And that flow doesn't last forever. Jesus rescues. He's coming back. He's setting it right. So there's joy in our suffering because we not, we're not grabbing onto the idols that float by and we have the expectant hope of Jesus' return. The Gospel is God's answer to suffering. And that kind of joy and that kind of hope and imitation of God and turning from idols makes us then into natural evangelists. Makes us into natural evangelists. Why? Because when you realize that everything else is sliding down the mudslide and you've got a hope that's true and will save you, man, that becomes good news. And it's news worth sharing. 
Evangelism is, is kind of a scary word for Western believers. That's a shame. Why is it a scary word for us? Well, I think because of two things. One, we forget, we've forgotten what we've been given in Christ. And, and two, we confuse evangelism with a sales pitch. Right? Oh man, I gotta go. It's like, it's like, it's like the dread you get when you have to go buy a car and you get on that car lot and you know that guy's coming for you. Right? And we think of evangelism much in the same way. What, what, what a shame. Look, evangelism is, evangelism is a gift. God has given some to be evangelists. Right? But, but it's a responsibility for all of us in the church. And, 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 and when we, when we remember and we recognize and understand and cherish the good news that we've been given in Christ, that responsibility turns into a passion to share it. Right? And I know that we're more than capable of sharing things that we're excited about. A few hours from now, there's going to be a lot of people who are watching football games. Right? And if you're a fan of the Jacksonville Jaguars or the Patriots or the, the Vikings or the Eagles, and they score a touchdown, they get, they get a big run, right? What, what, do, what do you do? This is, it's so funny. I was watching some videos this week. My son was showing them to me on, on, uh, on YouTube or something of like the, those fan reactions from last weekend's games. You see these, these big grown guys, right? And they're, they're just jumping up. It's, it's, it's hilarious. Like you go, you're not doing that in any other area of your life. I guarantee you're not doing that at work. You're not doing that, right? But, but when you watch football and all of a sudden you, you lose your mind. Why? Because you're passionate about it. And what are they doing? They're sharing that passion with everybody. There was one of those videos that, that he showed me was, a, was from Minnesota, and it, it looked like maybe it was like in a shopping mall where there was like the, there was the floor, and then there was these different tiers of, of balconies and, and levels, and it was packed full of people. There must have been thousands of people in there. And, and at one accord, they were all going, Skull! Which is, I guess, what they say in Minnesota. S-K-O-L, Skull. That's a Viking thing. But it was, it was powerful, because like, it was, it was really in unison. Skull! Thousands of people at once. And my, my son was like, that's impressive. And I was thinking, my mind, man, that, that, but with a far better cry is what heaven's going to be like. Jesus. Right? When you're passionate about something, when you know something is valuable, and you want to share that, right? And here's the, here's, here's the encouragement. We have so much more than temporal good news to share. We have so much more than temporal good news to share. We have eternally good news. Luke chapter 10 is an interesting scene. Jesus sends His disciples out to go and and to share that good news, to do ministry in the surrounding villages. And, and one of the things that happens is, is they're encountering demoniacs. They're encountering people who have been possessed by demonic spirits, and they're able to cast them out. Which I, I can only imagine if, if, if that's an experience that you have, that's cooler than a football game. Right? Could you, I mean, that would be like, that would be impressive. Right? And they come back, and they're all excited about that. And what are they doing? They're, they're just talking about it. We were able to cast out demons. I mean, this is incredible. And th this is, this is what, 
what's said there in the text. The, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. In other words, I think he's saying, what I saw was even cooler than that. In, in, in the grand scheme of like impressive things to see. I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. That's an impressive thing. And over all of the power of the enemy, that's an impressive statement. Nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, he says, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In other words, there's no better news than salvation. There's no better news than my sins are forgiven. God knows my name. Right? So the fruit of, of one who knows Christ is the knowledge that there is nothing better in this world. With all of the good things that this world has to offer, there is nothing better than the knowledge of salvation. And the, and the realization that that salvation is mine. And that would drive, I would think, I would hope, a whole lot more evangelism. Because if you could know that, and you can, if I can share that with you and be a part of the power of God transforming your life, oh man. So, let's return to our main idea. As we pray for increased spiritual fruit in our own and each other's lives, let me, let me just pause on that for a minute and, and just, just talk to those of you who are, who are in Christ, which by God's grace is, is most of us. Let's, let's pray for an increase of this kind of spiritual fruit. That, that we would be a people who are imitating God by His grace and by His power, right? But we're becoming like Him. And, and we're becoming like Him so much so that we become examples to one another and to the surrounding world that they can look at us and see without, without somebody having to say, these people are different. They go, well, of course, we see it. We see it. Th these people have joy in, in the midst of trials. That's remarkable. These are, these are people who are so full of joy that they're spilling out and they're, they're speaking as to what that joy is and it's, it's different than what the world has to offer. The Jesus and the salvation in Jesus that they're speaking of has, has far more power than the relationships and the money and the sex and the whatever it is that I'm grabbing onto for security. As we pray for increased spiritual fruit in our own and in each other's lives, let's thank God for what He's done. And let's ask God to increase this power. Let's ask God to, to make us a people who are responding with works of faith and labors of love that are rooted in the rest that Christ gives us. Which is to say, Rest in Christ. 
Rest in the power of God for your salvation, but live like it. One of the, we have these ESL classes, and I heard a story. Um, Stephen, where are you? You were teaching the class. Jorge passed this on to me. Um, this is awesome. You're going to remember this story. One of the, one of the students in the class was, was saying, to, kind of with that concept of what it means to rest in Christ, but to also to walk in Christ. They, they used this picture. They, they said, oh, that, it's like a duck. Like, what? <laughs> what do you mean? Well, you know, when you see a duck on the surface, they're just, they're just calm. They're just, right? They're calm. They're, they look like they're at rest, but you know, under the surface, their little feet are moving. I love that picture. That's a great picture of grace-driven effort. We're resting in Christ. When, when you look at my life, I look like that duck on the surface, right? I am, I am trusting in the power of God for my salvation and my sanctification. I am resting in His finished work, right? But underneath the surface, I'm still moving. Because I'm walking in it. That's great. So we should be praying for that church. That that kind of fruit would increase in our lives. And then the second part of my main idea is for the rest of you, bear in mind that there are certain marks that authenticate our identity as genuine growing Christians. And apart from these marks, you can't have assurance that you're truly among God's elect people. I, I don't say that as a condemnation to you, but as an encouragement to you. That if, if you, maybe you've worn the label. Maybe you've professed to be a Christian, but you say, I don't see any, there's not repentance in my life. There's not transformation in my life. I don't see this fruit in my life. Then be warned that maybe your understanding of Christianity is more of a cultural label than an actual power of God into salvation. And, and I say that as an encouragement. Today is the day of salvation. Trust Christ. You can't save yourself. Your labels won't save you either. But faith that's marked by repentance, conviction of sin, and the bearing of fruit is the evidence of God's great mercy in your life. So what do you do? You say like the people in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, what do I do? And the answer is the same. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Come to Christ. Today is the day of salvation. Father, I ask You to help us as we evaluate this. Lord, first of all, that, that we would indeed give You thanks for the, the fruit that You produce in our lives. Apart from You, Lord, we are, we are incapable of bearing this kind of fruit. But even as we thank You for this fruit, Lord, we trust You for more. Continue to sanctify Your people. Continue to produce in us lives that, that shine forth Your power. Help us to rest in Christ and to work in Christ without getting those two things mixed up. We rest in You fully. But Lord, let our, let our lives be examples. Let our lives be testimonies. Let our lives be effort that's driven by Your grace so that our fruit is, is increasing and, and being an example to others, loving one another in ways that are sacrificial. That's labor of love. God, we just ask You to, to make Edgewater a place like that, a people like that. And I, and I do pray, Lord, for my friends here who, who don't have 
confidence or assurance in that faith, Lord, would you, by your power, open their eyes to see their need and, and grant to them the faith to believe. Grant to them the conviction to see their sin and to turn from it. Grant to them salvation. And I thank you, Lord, that all whom you have called will come. What a great hope we have in Christ. Give us eyes to be always looking to Him with expectation. Even in this world that we live, even in that river that we swim in, that You, Lord, You are the author and perfecter of our faith. You are the One who establishes Your people. You will bring us home. And we thank You and praise You for that. In Jesus' name, Amen.